OWC Radio is sponsored by Otherworld Computing, delivering perfectly tailored workflow solutions for every tech user with trusted storage, connectivity, software, and expansion products, and 24-7 U.S.-based technical support. OWC believes in making a better world where technology inspires imagination and everything is possible. Find your solution at MaxSales.com. It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. Kevin Burke is the founder and principal of Burke PR. I've known Kevin for a long time. He runs a public relations and communications consultancy that specializes in the media, entertainment, production, post-production, and music tech space. He's awesome at what he does. He has a lot of talents. And we're going to talk about your music before we go. But hi, Kevin. Thank you for doing this in the middle of all of your craziness. Um. (laughs) Hey, Serena. Thanks for having me. It's always fun talking to you. Yeah, so you have had over the years some of the most amazing and interesting clients. Yeah. But before we get into that, I want to set the scene a little bit. Tell me about your background and your education and where you come from so people can understand how your background contributes to your success with all of these companies. Sure. I, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's uh, an incredibly linear story, but um, it, it, it <laughs> Those is, are the best ones, the non-linear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so going way back to the 80s, um, I, uh, I'm a graduate of Boston University. Ultimately, I, I graduated with a degree in business administration and marketing, but I didn't start out that way. I, I actually went into college thinking that I was going to be a a rock and roll and a music star. And I entered college as a music major. And um, after about a year of studying classical guitar performance, I realized I I don't think I'm cut out for this exactly. So <laughs> maybe I should try something different. <laughs> uh, and I'm, and I'm kind of glad that I, I had that realization at that very young age. I think I was 18 when I made that decision. But um, it that decision landed me in a business school, not knowing anything about business, not knowing anything about anything really. Um, and I, I, I threw a dart at the dartboard and it landed on marketing and I thought that sounded interesting. So I started to really dive into that. So my entire uh, school career uh, at BU was, was in business administration and marketing and, and everything that goes with that. Um, Can I ask you a question and then we'll continue? Yeah. When you made that decision at 18 to leave music, what precipitated that? Because you are good at it. I'm asking because I did a similar thing. I wanted to get into music too, and I made a decision to go into something else. What was the catalyst for you to decide, I'm going to take another turn? Was it your family? Was it the desire for financial success? Was it some friends? Well, I remember the moment I was looking around it was a saturday in the fall and every single one of my friends on a saturday was in a practice room somewhere Mm -hmm. practicing for 12 13 hours at a stretch and i was thinking that's not me i'm 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 not doing that why aren't i as dedicated as as these people and i really started to ask a lot of questions about 
you know, what I really wanted to do. And, you know, was, is this more of a hobby? Is this something that I just gained personal pleasure from, or is this really a career that I want to throw my entire self into? Mm -hmm. And I, and I came to the realization that I think this is more of a hobby and something that I just enjoy. And yeah, I, I, I thought I was pretty good. I, you know, had some modicum of talent, but I wasn't convinced that I was good enough to, especially as a classical guitarist. I mean, geez, at the time, I think the the biggest names out there were Andre Segovia and mm-hmm. Christopher Parkening. And I'm like, I'm 18. I, I can't compete with that. I, there's no way. And I really started to think, well, what other options are out there for me that you know, I can create a life for myself, create a comfortable life for myself because I do have, have I, you know, my brother was a, was a musician and I did watch him struggle and, and that probably paid, played into it a little bit, you know, getting that sort of firsthand glimpse into how difficult it can be right. and the lifestyle that you have to lead if you want to pursue that dream, especially in the early years. And I wasn't convinced that that was for me. Right. So I said, okay, what else, what else can I do? And I literally fell into the business school. You are proving Chris Fenwick's point. He said something to me a few weeks ago that I really resonated with. And he said, look at what you want or what you think you want today. And look at what you did yesterday. And if the two of them don't match, then your want is in the wrong place. Yeah. (laughs) And I think you're proving his point. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah good, so, okay. So you decided it. 18 and there you are in business school. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Stumbling my way through financial accounting and financial management and in, in, in hell, literally in hell in those, in those courses. But I found uh, uh, some glimmers in marketing because I realized I, I found it fascinating how you, the, the power of influence how you could create a message, you could create an image, you could, you know, create some language that could influence masses of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that little kernel really kind of fascinated me. And it, it, it led me to dive a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. Um, And, you know, that, that was my, my introduction to the whole concept of marketing and, and, and in particular, in influence. And I think it was the influence part of it that really stuck with me. And I, and began to shape my, uh, my career as I move forward from there. Would you say you're an extrovert or an introvert? I think that I, I think I'm an introvert. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I come across a lot of people, uh, personally, you know, my personal life in, in through work, um, and, you know, I look at how they carry themselves and I say, God, I could never be like that. You know, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the sales guy who is, you know, always the one at the party who's telling the best stories and making everybody laugh. I'm like, wow, how do you do that? That's that's I mean, I don't have anything that funny to say or that interesting to say. So and I thought of myself as an introvert, but extroverted enough that I was always willing to you know, seek out and, 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 and kind of find people to connect with. And, and again, kind of coming back to my business and my consultancy, it's, it's that that's really at the, at the heart of it. And I think that's, what's um, really driven me forward. I think it's interesting because I would have put you in the introvert category as well. You're always, I've watched you for years work with your clients and at large events like NAB or, 
IBC, um, those kinds of events where everybody's trying to talk louder than everybody else, and you have this very quiet way of working. But I can see how, as a young man, the ability to influence a lot of people through your writing, through your graphics, through your marketing and PR, how that would give you a voice. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I'm thinking about that while you're talking. I think it, it's a perfect match for you, really, because you're smart and you have things to say. You're just not a braggart, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, it's- Never really convinced that anybody would be that interested in anything that I had to say. <laughs> well, I always say, always viewed myself as um, as the man behind the curtain mm-hmm. um, in many ways, and and mm-hmm. and the 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 notion of doing a podcast or doing something like this at first was very off putting for me because it's like, well, no, that's that's not me. I, you know, I put my clients in front of the mm-hmm. microphone and help mm-hmm. them out there, but you know, this isn't about me. Um, but I'm really glad that you you always reach out to me and say, "Hey, let's do this, let's talk," because mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy it, and um, it, it you, I realize that it is it is a big part of what I what I enjoy is connecting with well with people like you and being able to just you know talk and share ideas, and um, so I do I do really enjoy it. Well, the business is crazy right now. The whole business of PR, marketing, sales, and trying to help tech companies. At what point did you decide you really liked tech? Because a lot of your clients are tech companies. There's Some of them are startups. Some of them are larger companies. Can you tell people who some of your clients are? And then I want to talk to you about at what point you decided you wanted to work with companies like that. Well, I can tell you today I have a pretty amazing group of companies that I work with. Um, I could just run down the list. Um, Accusonos is a, um, a company out of Greece, actually based in Athens. They make um, audio repair plugins uh, for content creators. Very, very cool company. Um, FX Home, the creators of HitFilm. I love these guys. They're mm-hmm. incredibly creative and community driven, just an incredible group of people. Uh, Filmic and Filmic Pro. These guys are just blowing my mind with what they're doing with a camera video on the iPhone and Android devices. Um, LumaTouch, the creators of LumaFusion, what these guys are doing with full-blown professional editing on an iPad mm-hmm. is just incredible. Uh, Puget Systems, uh, they make custom uh, workstations for content creators. Uh, again, another incredible group of people who are so dedicated to their customers and so dedicated to their community. That's the heart of their success. And that's what I love about the most. It's like, yeah, their technology is great and they're really smart people, but they're so connected with uh, with the community. And mm-hmm. uh, my old friend, Jim Tierney in Digital Anarchy, doing some incredible things with uh, visual effects plugins and more recently with, uh, with uh, transcription. Um, and I'm excited to to say I just um, signed on with a company called Magics, the people who bring you Vegas. So um, I'll be just starting up with them in a couple of days. So I'm very excited about that. Very cool. So when did you decide you had this leaning towards tech? When I fell backwards into it. (laughs) Aha. All right. I want to know more. (laughs) So Again, go, going way back, uh, graduating from from BU, knowing that I want a, or I think I want a career in marketing. So, you know, this is 1988. It's a very different landscape. There's no internet. There's no 
you know, you're you're mailing out resumes and you're doing interviews in person. And I can't even believe when somebody says that to me, there was no Internet. And I realize that I lived in an age where when there was no Internet, I, I, I feel very old. I know. It's crazy. Well, it, it's it is crazy. crazy. But it also wasn't that long ago. <laughs> wow. We're not that old. But <laughs> oh my goodness. So you fell backwards into it. Yeah. There was this this company that came onto campus at Boston University and um, they were a add-in memory manufacturer. They made memory boards for, you know, vac stations and Apollo and Sun Microsystems, like a lot of companies that don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but they said we like you. We like uh, um, we like your background. You know, it was interesting. They were intrigued by my music. You know, everything else looked the same as everybody else, but they said, "Oh, this music major thing. T tell us about that." You know, that that stood out to them as it was different. It, it kind of made me a little bit. It, it it made me stand out a little bit above the crowd. Um, well, two things: people who are who are gifted in music are often very good at math and very good at tech. I find. A lot of my tech friends are also musicians. And and the other thing is that your clients like to work with people they find interesting and people they like. So right. it, it goes without saying. Anyway, so they say, tell me about your music. Yeah, yeah. So and we hit it off and they hired me, but they hired me in their sales department. And for me, you know, it was a foot in the door. I'm just graduating. It's a, it's a job. It's an opportunity to get started with something. I knew nothing about technology, absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. Um, but what I, what I learned very quickly at this company, it was called Clearpoint Research out in Hopkinton, Mass. And what I learned very quickly that I had this knack for some reason, I had this knack of translating very complex at the time, complex ideas about how memory boards worked and translating that so that, like the average person could understand it. And that kind of evolved for me. And as I, as my career progressed and I, and I got a little deeper into the technology market, it wasn't so much my love of technology, but it, it was my ability to um, translate the benefit and translate what it meant. Not, not what is it, but what does it mean? Um, and I became good at that. And I, I can't really explain why it just sort of happened. And I, and I recognized that as, okay, this is, this is something that I, that I can do well from there. It led to, uh, public relations. And in fact, it was at that very same company. This, this was, you know, late eighties, um, somewhat of a recession. Times were tough. Ad budgets were shrinking. Uh, we were trying to figure out how do we get more exposure for our little company when we can't really afford to do advertising. So I raised my hand and I said, you know, I've been hearing about this PR thing. Let me try that. You know, I understand it's a really efficient way of getting our, our message out. You know, we don't have to pay for ads, but if we can get editors to talk about us and write about us, we can get that visibility. PR is more believable than ads for the masses in, in most cases anyway. I mean, I think advertising is good at building brand awareness and establishing your brand personality, right? But people really do believe PR. Uh, they do. If it's well, done they, right. Well, anyway, go they, ahead. <laughs> they, they believe, they don't necessarily believe PR. They believe in the influencers, in the in the public, you know, if there's a publication back in the day, it was, there were these magazines, you know, PC magazine that mm -hmm. came out every month. And, you know, those were 
influential magazines, these tech journalists that people listen to. So it was my job to connect with these influencers, with these journalists and reporters and make myself believable and valuable to them so that they would then turn around and tell the story on behalf of my company or my client. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's, and that's the challenge. And that's um, cause you're absolutely right. I do believe that while advertising is, is valuable. Um, I also recognize that there are very, very few companies that are good at it. Um, it's really hard to be good at advertising and it's really expensive to be good at advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, but not so much with PR. It's hard to be good at PR, but not necessarily um, incredibly expensive. So let's talk about that for a moment too. You have yeah. this new client, you find out you like tech, you find out you're really good at translating tech into normal speak so that people can understand. What do you say to people who 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 nowadays say, well, I, I can do PR. I know how to tweet. I know how to put stuff up on Facebook. You know, I often say just because you know how to tweet doesn't make you a good PR person. Well, I guess I it I, I throw it back in terms of, well, then what what do you think PR is? Right. You know, I think a lot of people have a lot of different answers. For me, it's it means something very um, very personal and increasingly something very different. You know, I, I I grew up in the agency world. After I left this company, I was I worked for agencies in Boston for for many years, mm-hmm. and I was observing how how they operated, how they how they would staff up for a client, and how how these um, you know very junior PR people would op- would operate, and I also observed the frustrations on the client side, and and it just seemed very 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 broken to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you may have alluded to it. I just saw a lot of inexperience and unwillingness to invest in immersing yourself in the industry, immersing yourself into you know everything that that's important to a reporter or into a journalist or to an influencer, you kind of have to be right there with them. Mm-hmm. You can't just be kind of reading uh, a script that maybe somebody else wrote and then say, so are you going to write an article for me? How about now? How about now? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and it, it just doesn't work that way. And and nobody wins either. And I I, I hated the the whole sort of environment and it, it was a very negative environment, especially in tech PR in the nineties. Um, you know, it was very adversarial. Um, I would have reporters hanging up on me and, and yelling at me and uh, like, really? Why? Uh, uh, well, tech PR is very different um, than say the entertainment media tech. Mm-hmm. It's a very different community in, mm-hmm. in, in tech PR, especially back in the day. I mean, I'm going back to 95, mm-hmm. you know, these are a bunch of people who are sitting in newsrooms who are cranking out articles as fast as they can, um, who are relying on uh, this exploding industry, this cottage industry of, of PR with these junior people harassing them with story ideas and trying to wade through what's the BS and what's real and what's newsworthy um, and not really being able to rely on any of these people because they, you know, they're junior PR people. They didn't know what they were talking about. They were just 
they were just tasked with, you know, send out this press release and keep sending it until somebody writes something. And, you know, that's, it's just not the way it works in the long run. It's, no, and it's they, not, couldn't, they couldn't answer questions either. All they, they can had, never answer questions. Right, because they didn't write it. Now, I've noticed when you write a press release for a tech company, you're very tech savvy, and that comes across with how you write and what you write, and it's reliable. So how else can you say you are different from a lot of the other companies that work in the business today? Well, I'll just speak to myself and what what's important to me. Uh, okay. the number so one, I don't num- want to put you on the thing- spot, but you are good. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but what I've identified a couple of things that are very important to me. I kind of have some, some values, some core values. One of the biggest ones is, is relationships. And, you know, I've invested a lot of time over the past 20 years, just in this industry alone into those relationships um, because I need to be a trusted, valuable resource for people, not just, you know, relying on, on someone to write about my client here. I'm going to send you stuff. You just write about my client, you know, because that's just serving me. I'm not interested in just serving me and my clients. I want to be valuable for you because I understand you've got a job to do. You, you need to create value for your readers, for your listeners, for your viewers. And you're not going to be successful unless you have really good things to talk about or write about uh, or, or demonstrate. So let's work on this together. How can mm-hmm. I help you be more successful? And then, you know what? At the end of the day, you'll be successful. I'll be successful. My clients will be successful. But, you know, we kind of have this understanding and this relationship and we're, you know, we're in this together um, and we're going to help each other, help each other through this. Uh, that's the long tail of it. I think you're very smart about that, you know? Yeah, well, I, I, I think it's important just because I've lived through the flip side of that. I've, I've lived through and I still see it. Too. I, you know, I'm in touch with a lot of the tech reporters from back in the day. You know, we're friends on Facebook and, you know, we don't work together anymore because they're still doing you know, IT stuff. Um, but I, I watch them suffer through PR hell and, you know, they're constantly posting hashtag PR fails and, <laughs> and, and, and posting these horrible pitch letters that or pitch emails that get sent to them. And like, Oh my God, all these years later, you're still suffering through this nonsense of just being harassed with, you know, jargon and BS. And they, it's, they don't even know you. Um, but they're harassing you. Well, you know what really bothers me? This is one of my pet peeves. When I get a pitch email from a publicist and I know immediately all they have done is bring up that list on their contact management service, right? Which I don't subscribe to. Well, they just bring up that list. They've got (laughs) thousands of people on it and they upload the press release and they click send. And they just are mass marketing their client sometimes to companies and PR people or journalists rather who have no interest in that subject at all. And it's waste my time. And it, you know, I get so many emails anyway. I, I, I don't want to whine about this, but it is annoying. (laughs) You know, there's one other, there's one thing I really would love you to talk about. And that is how, 
reaching our audience, reaching our clients, reaching our customers has changed in the last 20 years. You know, in the old days, there was certain things you could do to get the word out on behalf of your clients, Mm -hmm. print, radio, television, events, public appearances, that kind of thing. Fade out, fade back in. It's now 2019 and everything is different. And I think a lot of a lot of companies are scrambling to try to figure out how to reach their customers. What kind of advice can you give them? Well, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's completely different. And one of the biggest changes is that we all have the opportunity to connect directly with the uh, with your audience, with your customer your, or, you know, whoever your audience is, you have the opportunity to connect directly with them. Um, and that's, and that's changed the game in a big, big way. Um, but I also caution that, you know, you need to be smart about that. You need to be careful about that. A lot of companies today are playing a numbers game. And, you know, you alluded to this earlier too, about like when PR agencies, they buy these lists and they just spam you know, because it's about the numbers. And my argument is, no, it's not. It's still about the people. It's Mm -hmm. about the people and it's about where they're spending their time. So you need to invest that time to find out who these people are, where they're spending their time and meet them where they're at. Mm -hmm. That might mean they're on Twitter. That may mean they're at NAB or at a, at, CES or at a user group meeting or, but you need to, to be there with them, wade into that community and become a part of it. You can't just spam them because you want the numbers. And I think that's a trap that a lot of people fall into. It's all about the data. It's all about the numbers. It's all about the rankings. And it's like, when you do that, when you approach it that way, when you lead with that long-term, you lose, you might gain the sense of immediate term gratification because you see a number like, oh, we got a thousand likes. Or, you know, you look at the Google Analytics and you see this huge number that makes you feel good, like, okay, that was a success. But my argument is, was it? (laughs) You know, are you really connecting in a a meaningful, substantive way with your communities? my, I don't think so. Uh, it's not to say that data is not important. It's not to say that the numbers are important to use as a guideline, as, you know, keep that in mind to see, you know, they're measurement tools. They're not st- strategic right. direction setting tools. Well, there's a huge difference between the number of likes and hits and the amount of engagement and, right. and uh, I, I see a lot of people trying to do this for themselves and they're spending a lot of time doing, you know, they're making videos that they hope will go viral or they're tweeting or they're Facebooking or, or they're on Reddit or Pinterest or Etsy yeah. or heaven knows where. And yeah. nobody's, nobody's listening, nobody's looking, nobody is aware. 
it's almost like they're shouting into the wind. You talk to us a little bit about the demographics of the different outlets that you think are valuable for your clients. Like, for example, where would you, which client would you put on YouTube or which would you work on Facebook with, or is it all of the above? Again, it's about where are, where are your people spending their time? Where is mm-hmm. your community spending their time? It might be Twitter. It might be YouTube. It might, you know, it, it, it really depends. Um, but it, I, I kind of look at it differently. I look at, you know, what's the story that, that we're sharing? What's the value that we're adding to, you know, if you're, you know, an Acusonos, right. And you, mm-hmm. and you have these incredible audio repair plugins now I look at that and I know instinctually that there's a lot of editors out there who are not sound designers, but they have to deal with audio. They're going to want to know about this. You're talking to one of them right now. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I think sound is my weak point. We were talking about it at the creative summit this weekend. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sound is really tough. So yeah, they have so, solutions. Well, exactly. So it's like, okay, so where are these people? Where, mm-hmm. where are these editors? Mm-hmm. Well, they're in a lot of different places. So you kind of need to wander around into all of them and, and connect with them. Um, so for example, with, you know, with Acusonus, it's, you know, yeah, there's traditional coverage because for me, you know, you get an article in say a studio daily or post perspective or post magazine or um, pro video coalition. I mean, these are all great places to start a conversation, to get, it's not the end game. That article in Studio Daily is not the end game. That's that's the starting point. That starts a conversation. Then mm-hmm. you take that content, then you take it to Twitter and say, hey guys, I heard you were talking about sound last week. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And you engage. And, you know, so it's it's all about engaging and bringing value to the community and understanding all of the different avenues that are available to you in order to do that. Um, so it's not a campaign. It's not a neat little package. It's just your ability, your willingness um, to connect and engage with the community and understand where they are. Mm-hmm. And it often means there are many, many different places. So you need to be there. I think your personal approach is really important. I try to talk to people about that and some people just don't get it. But you know, you you're the kind of person who will pick up the phone or will send an individual email and say, "Hey, I have this new client. I think this is interesting for you. What do you think?" And so it becomes a service that you're offering to journalists, which we appreciate. You know, me as a journalist, putting my journalist hat on, I really appreciate that because I know that when I get an email from somebody like a Kevin Burke, it's going to be something that was thought out that's aimed directly at me. You know, I'm curious because you've handled a lot of startups. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about some of them stay with you for years and others say, okay, we're really big. We don't need you anymore. There's that mm-hmm. kind of attrition thing that happens. It used to happen to me when I was managing writers and directors many years ago, you know, you, they would get the one big hit and then they would get, they would say, okay, I'm going to go on to a bigger company. Is that hard for you? Or do you find most people are staying? I don't want to embarrass you with this question, but I'm just curious <laughs> about it because you work so hard. We all work very hard on behalf of our clients and um, loyalty is not what it used yeah, to be. I, um, you know, it, it's, 
it's case by case. A lot of my clients stay with me. Yeah, I'm looking for at this years, list no, and I'm thinking you've had a lot of these guys for a long time. Yeah, because you know there's there's a lot of trust that's that's built up. There's a lot of, um, you know, I work very closely with. I, I really do partner with my my clients and I get involved in their in their day to day, and it becomes, well, how can I continue to add value to this team so that we can continue continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and we evolve and our relationship evolves, um, as time goes on. Um, yes, sure. There's, there are absolutely times where I've had, well, clients get acquired and that's, mm-hmm. that's usually like, that's the end of the, you know, I've only had one exception was when, uh, uh my client, um, Cineform was acquired by GoPro. And I thought, oh man, there's, yeah, that's it. I, I, I've lost a client, but Cineform, uh, the team, we had such a, a great rapport and, and um, they told GoPro that, no, you should, you need to keep, keep Kevin on board because he can really help communicate to the filmmaking community. And it was, mm-hmm. it was one of those, um, one of those examples where when a client got acquired, but I still was able to stay on and work for a few years. Um, which was fantastic, but you know, for the most part, they they do stay longer term because you know we're, we're just growing uh, together. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk tech for a minute. I'm curious about your take on where the business of tech is going for uh, for filmmakers and for creatives. Um, do you see a trend happening anywhere that you want to talk about? I have some thoughts, but I, I want to know from you what you what you're thinking. Yeah, well, I'm I'm. There's certainly things that I'm excited about. Um, mobile filmmaking being one, mm-hmm. democratization in general. I mean, we've been watching democratization happen for years now, and it just kind of goes from, you know, it, it evolves. You know, we watched it evolve from linear editing to non-linear editing to, you know, in the camera market, we went from big cinema cameras down to um, DSLRs. And now we're talking about, you know, shooting, uh, you know, directors like Steven Soderbergh shooting major films on an iPhone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by by all of that. And, and I feel like right now we're in this incredibly exciting time with, with mobile devices and, and mobile filmmaking because it is accelerating that democratization even more. Um, so what Filmic is doing, what uh, LumaTouch is doing, uh, it, you know, just really exciting. So I, I think that's a very hot trend right now. And I don't think mm-hmm. that that's, I don't think that's a, um, a, a flash in the pan thing because one of the things that I notice is even the skeptics out there, they're, they're talking about iPhones and Android device devices as cameras, even though they might be skeptical about it, they're talking about them in the same conversations that they're talking about cinema cameras. And five years ago, that wouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. That those devices would not be in the same conversation. And and now, just like DSLRs got folded into those conversations, mobile phones, iPhones are you know, part of that conversation. And I, and I find that really interesting. You know, and I thought as somebody who's very involved with the final cut community, I thought, well, is LumaTouch 
competing with Final Cut Pro, but no, it's integrating, isn't it? It's it's integrating. Oh, yeah. You can export your XML from LumaTouch directly into Final Cut. So I think, how do you feel about all of that? Like the, they're playing together, Filmic Pro and DubDub. They talked about the new iPhone and being able to shoot in more than one angle at the same time. I'm excited about that. When is that coming out? Are you allowed to say, <laughs> I want it now? <laughs> Can I have it now? Sooner than you think. So no. Good. <laughs> no, that is that is that is coming very soon. Um, and yeah, I think it's incredibly exciting, and it goes to what I was what I was saying about the conversations that we're having that we would never have, you know, three years ago, five oh. years ago, um, because it just it wouldn't make any sense. You'd, You'd look at me crazy if if we're talking about cinema cameras and I pulled out an iPhone. You'd be like, okay, put that away. We're talking about cameras. But even skeptics are talking about iPhones with the same language, the same lexicon, the same, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think that is incredibly telling. And I think also to the point that this isn't – I've had skeptics say, oh, it's, it's just marketing. They're just trying to market iPhones. It's a flash in the pan. It's like, well. No, it's not because you have filmmakers, you have the Steven Soderbergh's, you have the Matthew Cherry's, the Sean Baker's of the world. These guys are making films with their phones, not because they want to do to, to do something gimmicky, but because they're they're experiencing a connection with their story that was lost when they were separated by this massive camera. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, there's this tiny device, this this thin, tiny device in the in their hands that is putting them inches away from their story. Um, you know, Claude Lelouch said that as well. He, you know, talks about this intimate connection with, with his story, with his characters, with, his, uh, with the actors that you just don't experience. And that has nothing to do with gimmicks and, and, or trends or flash in the pans. This is, they're seeing an exciting new way to, to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And so sure, yeah, we're going to see Final Cut absolutely embracing LumaFusion. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned Filmic Pro as, as well. You're going to see increasingly these players in those uh, conversation circles. It's exciting. Can you explain to people listening better than I did what Filmic Pro is about to be able to do? They announced it at DubDub, which is the Worldwide Developer Conference for Apple. When was that? Was that already three or four months ago now, right? I don't know. Was it that long ago? I don't know. Yeah. But but they announced... It's about two months ago. Yeah, okay. So like, I don't know where we are. Where, it where, where, where feels are like it's in? forever ago because <laughs> I've been waiting for this. Explain to people what's going to happen with the new version of Filmic Pro. Well, in, in short, it's talking about uh, a multicam experience. Mm-hmm. So you have essentially four cameras in the mm-hmm. in the iPhone 11 mm-hmm. if you count the front facing camera right so imagine doing a multicam shoot with an iPhone with one iPhone mhm that's that that's what blew me away that you could get two angles at once with the same mm-hmm. with the same push record and you're getting two angles at once i really want to try that and see how you can you know how do you how do you do that that's pretty cool so what about um, i can hook you up with that uh, that would be awesome. I, w- I do want to. I do want to try that. Um, I wish I had had it with me when I was recently in Sicily. I was shooting with two iPhone 11s. Oh wow! 
And it occurred to me that it would be kind of fun to pare that down yeah. and keep it simple. That's the thing yeah. with what's happening with mobile. Mm -hmm. Keep it simple, right? It's exactly if you can. I mean, if it's appropriate, there are some obviously some projects where mobile's not appropriate. But if you can keep it simple, it's lighter. It's easier to travel internationally. It's easier to navigate your way through uh, situations that you might get you might yeah. get robbed if you're walking around with a a huge camera you might get mugged. Um, talk <laughs> about Michael Cioni's now at Frame.io. How do you think that's going to change the tenure of the, the, uh, the company and the way the company does business? Do you have an opinion on that? At Frame? At Frame.io, mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I mean, I'm just watching these guys get bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're making really smart moves. Um, I... I don't work with Frame anymore, so I'm not as plugged in. Mm -hmm. But I watch them from the sidelines, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm still in touch with Emery and mm -hmm. uh, on occasion. And but watching from the sidelines and watching because it's it's a dangerous game, potentially dangerous game. When a company like that, you get all that funding, um, you see a lot of uh, you see a lot of startups really blow it. They mm -hmm. uh, they don't know how to manage that kind of growth. They don't know how to manage that, um, you know, that kind of pressure from the investment community and they fall apart. Frame seems to be uh, holding steady to a very smart growth path, staying very true to their core values. Uh, you know, I worked with, with Emory and Frame.io in the very, very early days when it was just a handful of them and they're a tiny startup. Well, I remember, I mean, I remember talking to you about them in the very early days when I was producing the digital production buzz. I think we were the yeah. first company really to interview Emory. Yeah. He was still a kid. He hadn't gotten his $3 million financing <laughs> yet. It just was an idea that right. he was working on. And we all thought, whoa, this is kind of cool, right? Yeah. But you're the one that told me about it. <laughs> Yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I remember when we're getting yeah, older. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's fun to see your friends growing up though, isn't it? Well, it it is. And and what I love about those guys is that they stay very true to their to their values. They haven't forgotten their original mission. So they're so they're building even though it seemed like from the outside looking in, it's like, oh my God, it's huge. And they've got big offices now and they've got a massive staff and, you know, but they are staying true to their, to right. their, to their mission. And their, their product is so clean and elegant and um, they're, they're crushing it. I mean, I'm, I'm I, I don't want to say I'm proud of them because that sounds, but I am, Why not? I am proud I'm of proud them. Of well, them I'm, and... I'm very proud of them because, <laughs> They are an example of a group of people that that can succeed and succeed in the right way. Right. Um, so yeah. Okay. They're, so I have an incredible company. I have two questions for you before we switch and talk about your your music. One <laughs> okay. is, I'd like you to think for just a second about advice you can give to other startups about how to sort of launch. What What do you think? startups need to know in order to approach their market properly get the word out in the right way well i think i think at the very bare uh, minimum is kind of what i was saying about frame is know know your your mission and your values and and what what value are you bringing 
to your customers mm -hmm. and stay very, very true to that and understand uh, that in order to demonstrate value to your community, you have to connect with that community mm -hmm. uh, and connect, connect with them in meaningful ways. You know, you'll gain loyalty. Uh, th these people will stick with you if they trust you, if they believe in you. And so your ability to authentically and genuinely uh, share the value that you're bringing to the marketplace, that's such an important place to start. And I emphasize the word genuine and authentic because there's a lot of marketing out there that I feel is, is very disingenuous, is very jargon filled. It, mm -hmm. it, it feels like BS. And well, a lot of it is. And a, well, a lot of it is. And I, and I would say if you're hiding behind jargon, that's defensive posturing. It means that you're not confident enough in what you're doing to just say it. Just yeah. say it. Simplest terms. What do you do? Yeah. Don't, don't spin it. Don't put fancy made up words around it to, cause you think that will make you sound more valuable than you are. No, to incredibly simply to state it. Right. Um, and stay true to it. Yeah. And, and that will resonate. I promise you that will resonate. Um, and everything that we were talking about before connecting with people where they are, um, you know, you'll resonate with people. So what do you say? I mean, everybody would love to be able to, especially young companies, would love to be able to have the ability to hire a professional to help them. But if you're at the point where you're just getting started and you don't have that yet, is there one thing or are there two, a couple of things you can do to get the word out about your company so that you can start making enough money and hire a professional? I mean, what advice can you give to the babies that are just being born, these new companies that have a great vision and uh, the ability to really run the, you know, run down the path and be successful. They have to start somewhere. Yeah. So what do you tell them? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think social media is huge for startups because it's free, but it's not, it, <laughs> and I stress this, it's not about broadcasting. You can't just broadcast your message, meaning pushing information out mm -hmm. and, and, and not engaging. Engagement is so key. Use Twitter, use Facebook, use Facebook groups, use, you know, if you're a video company, use YouTube, mm -hmm. build a community and engage with them and offer them value. And you will grow your visibility, you will grow your credibility. Uh, all, of, all of those things will begin to fuel your growth and people will start to take notice, start showing up. Again, it's all about, I mean, this is such old fashioned marketing place, right? It's people, it's place. Those are the two big ones for me. You know, who are the right people and where are they? Exactly. I think the basic premise behind PR and marketing hasn't really changed. I think the, the way we communicate has, but I think um, it's very important for companies who are just start, starting out to know what language to speak to reach the people that they're trying to reach. You can't right. just spend, what is it, 100 bucks a month on Hootsuite and then throw in a whole bunch of pictures and tweets and Facebook posts and just kind of throw them in there and then just spread them out. I really think communication and the way you communicate, as you have said, mm -hmm. is very, very important. Absolutely. So I want to leave people with that. It's not how often 
you broadcast, as you said, it's what you say and who you say it to and the individual approach like you have is so important. So I want to talk about your music because (laughs) I love watching your videos. You pick up a guitar and you start to play. Tell people about what what that is. (laughs) (laughs) What? What, my videos? Yeah, your music. I mean, how did you get back into playing your guitar and really having fun with it and not being afraid to share what you're doing with other people? Tell tell yeah. people who don't know you what you do with your music, first of all. Well, it's it's always been something that uh, I just did for my own personal pleasure. I mean, when I was, when I was a lot younger, yeah, I'd play in bands and, you know, you get kids and, and kind of life takes over, you know, I'm not playing in bands and playing gigs anymore, but it was a, it was a couple of years ago that, um, and it, you know, it doesn't hurt that <laughs> you get, you have clients like GoPro and Filmic and, you know, I've got all these cameras suddenly and I've got all this great editing equipment. And I was sitting there one day and I said, you know, I'm going to point a camera at myself and just see what happens. And, you know, I'll just have a little fun with it. So I, I did this one video. It was um, my first video was uh, it was a Pink Floyd. It's like I love mm-hmm. I love David Gilmour. I love Pink Floyd. I'll just do a comfortable comfortably numb solo, and I'll put it on Facebook. And you know maybe my brother will see it. Maybe you know <laughs> maybe my mom will see it. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, it it like it blew up. Uh, you know, we lot- all saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody it was awesome, and all the people were coming out of the woodwork. Like, dude, what? What? What was that? You, you, you play guitar? <laughs> like, I've known you for twenty years, and I didn't even know you play guitar. So it was, it was really fun seeing people's reactions, and 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 then people coming and say, more, do another one. I want to see more. So. Um, it, for me, it was a way of, let's go on. I don't perform live anymore, but this kind of feels like it's that same feeling of performing live. Like, wow, this, this audience seems to be really enjoying this. So just for fun, you know, once in a while I'll set up a camera and I'll pick a song and I'll just play it and put it up there. And, um, so it's, for me, it's, it's just, it's a lot of fun. What equipment are you using? What what's your guitar and what equipment are you using? So my my favorite guitar. So I have two Fender Stratocasters. I'm One, cheating because I know the answer, but I want people to know. <laughs> yeah. So my um, I have a 1988 Fender Strat Plus, mm. which I didn't realize until recently is is a pretty valuable guitar. I, I bought it in 1988 for like 200 bucks at a little music store in Austin, Massachusetts. And not really knowing what I was buying, it just said Fender. And I knew I wanted a Fender Strat. So it's like, I finally have a Fender Strat. <laughs> uh, so so that's, that's, that's my baby. That's over 30 years old now. And it's uh, an incredible guitar. And I have another Stratocaster my wife and my kids gave me for my 50th birthday a couple of years ago. Um, this beautiful black strat with the white pick guard. Oh, I love it. It's an, it's basically an Eric Clapton strat. Hmm. And I have the very first electric guitar, which I still have. This is a, uh, 1975 Gibson Les Paul, um, which has not debuted in any of my videos yet. So I need to, uh, I need to break that one out. Oh, um, gotta do it. 
got to do it. So, um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I just record either directly into GarageBand. I'll lay down a lay down a rhythm track, mm-hmm. and then I'll you know turn on the camera and lay down a solo track over on top of that. And you know I'll just edit in. Uh, lately, I've been editing in LumaFusion, but used to edit in iMovie, but now now I have LumaFusion, which is great. Um, just re- you know, real real simple, clean cut videos, and then I post them to YouTube and Facebook. So how are you capturing the sound into GarageBand? So I have a, a little device from IK Multimedia. It's the iRig Pro. I, mm-hmm. I um, plug my guitar into this device, and this device has a USB connection right into my... <laughs> we can plug it right into my MacBook Air uh, and record directly into GarageBand. Wow. So now you're going to become a YouTube influencer, and you won't talk to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, That's awesome. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you found your music again. It's really fun watching you and listening to you. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to leave people with before before we go? I I don't think so. I mean, we covered a lot, and I and you know, I think just to bring it full circle again, kind of for me, I think going back to some advice for people and especially for startups, the relationships are everything. Um, it's not quantity it's quality mm-hmm. you know it's so tempting to go for the for the numbers play the numbers game it's not about the numbers yeah numbers are important i get it but it's the quality it's those quality of the connections that you make uh and the relationships that you foster that's what's going to uh that's what's going to make you su- succeed especially it's, in this industry it's such a absolutely. community absolutely i think it's going to help you succeed and it's also going to make you a happier person and the yeah. holidays are coming and this is a time when we will all be thinking about those we love and our family and all of our friends and the people in the industry that we work with every day. And Kevin, I, I value you as a friend. We've known each other for a long time. I'm, I'm, I can say I'm proud of you. And, um, oh, thank you. And so to, <laughs> I everybody, that. That means a lot. <laughs> to everybody listening, I've been speaking with Kevin Burke, who is the owner of Burke PR and someone that handles a lot of media tech, music tech, special effects, post-production, and production technology markets for his clients. So check him out. Where do they go to find out more about you, Kevin? You can find me on Twitter. I spend a lot of time there, at Burke PR on Twitter. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn if you want to see all the companies that I've worked with over the years and and what I've been up to. That's just Burke PR on LinkedIn as well. Right. And that's Uh, B-O-U-R-K-E-P-R. To repeat, yes. (laughs) All right, everybody, check him out. And if you enjoy OWC Radio, please subscribe, click like, send us your comments. uh, Let me know who else you might find interesting to listen to. And you know what I tell you guys every week? Get up off that chair and go do something wonderful today. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio and Kevin Burke signing off. Have a wonderful day. 